0: As you look at the text this morning, I suspect that you'll realize very quickly that this is a text that often comes with an awful lot of questions. And if you were going to teach this, you would be anticipating and expecting a lot of questions. People ask things like that, doesn't this passage perpetuate the subjection and ill treatment of women? People will ask, everyone recognizes the evils of slavery. Why doesn't Paul condemn slavery? Someone might say, I'm 30 years old and my parents are still telling me what to do. Am I required by the Bible to continue to do everything they tell me? This is a text that raises an awful lot of questions. And so as I went through preparing this sermon, I realized we're not going to get it done in one sermon. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do the bump and the set, and then next week we'll do the spike. Um, So we're going to set up the context of the discussion um, as we begin to dig into what's happening here. And I think that our first job as we begin to interpret Paul here is to begin to understand his setting in his context a little bit. And so to help us to do that, we need to recognize we need to be watching closely for the distance between what is happening in other household codes, because this, what Paul is doing, is not the first person ever to attempt to write how the household should be structured. And so we want to we look at what Paul is doing and compare that to these other lists and asks how much distance is there between these two things, items, And the other thing we want to do is we want to ask about direction. In other words, what direction is Paul moving? Is he becoming more strict or less strict? Is he teaching in a way that is more authoritarian or less authoritarian? So that's primarily what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the distance, and then we're going to look at the direction of the distance. So I I want to give a little illustration that I hope will help us to understand why both distance and direction are important. Um, Annette Kellerman. In 1907 decided she was going to go down to the beach. So she is near Boston and instead of ending up on a beautiful beach that day she ends up in jail. She was arrested for indecency wearing this swimsuit. Now to give you an idea of how much times have changed I am in a church building in 2019 showing a picture of a woman who was arrested for indecency. Now, if you were to take your cultural setting and to say, look at this, you might likely say, you think that's indecent? Wait till you see what's coming down the line. But in order to understand why she could have or why she might have been arrested for indecency, you have to know what she's being compared to. You need two pictures. And so here's a 1910 picture on average of what women would wear to the beach. And you can begin to understand why. And you can realize that her movement, there is a lot of distance... And her movement is not towards becoming more modest, but a movement towards becoming less modest. And in order to do this sort of discussion that we're going to do this morning, we have to have two pictures. Paul's picture of what he is saying, and we have to understand what's happening within that culture so we have a point of reference. And again, we would be looking at the distance, and we'll be looking at the direction of those distances. See, when Christianity comes to new contexts people will start asking some new and very important questions because as the gospel comes, it impacts things on multiple levels. Uh, One of the kind of classic preacher stories is of missionaries who first went to Africa, and when they arrived, they encountered polygamy, the practice of having multiple wives. And so as men were baptized, they were instructed that this was not a God-honoring way to do the home. You could not have multiple wives. And so one man would unsolve solve that problem by killing his extra wives. Probably not a great solution. What other people would commonly do is they would just choose one wife to keep and the others, they would just send them out on the streets. And as women who have now been discarded by their husbands, they're not allowed to return to their fathers, and many of those women were forced into prostitution to care for themselves. Not a great solution. And so the solution for many missionaries became, we will encourage husbands to have one wife that he treats as his wife in terms of an intimate relationship, but the other wives and their children, he is still required to have them in his home and provide economically for them, but to teach subsequent generations how they ought to live in terms of God's design for marriage. And so as the gospel comes to Colossae, a similar sort of thing is happening. Questions are, are, are being raised in terms of what does the lordship of Jesus Christ do for the home? We've recognized early in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that Jesus is Lord over the entire cosmos. That Jesus wants to have first place in everything. And now Paul is going to break this right down to the most intimate relationships and saying, here's how his lordship impacts your home. This is what it looks like in terms of the relationship between those different parties. And so we come to find that as Paul speaks about households, he's not doing it in the way that we do in terms of husband, wife, and 2.5 children. Households were much larger. You will have a a husband and a wife. Uh, You will have their children, that being foster children included, uh, adopted children including that. Then you will also have slaves in the household who are married and their children. All of these people, much larger than five, six people, are a part of the household. And for a very long time, how the household was structured, how it conducted itself was very important. Uh, 400 years before Jesus, Aristotle began to say something that sounds very contemporary. Using different language, he said, as the family goes, so the country goes. His exact language was that he believed that what happened in the smallest societal unit called the household would then be a prediction of what would happen in the largest societal unit called the state. And so for that reason and for that matter, if you were to say of your family, it's private, it's my business, In the first century, everyone would say it is not private it's not your business because how you conduct your household becomes how the state conducts itself. And so for that reason, there was an awful lot of interest in how families should conduct themselves to have an orderly state, which was a value to the Roman society. And so beginning with Aristotle, and you can have piles and piles of people, they write household codes, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And so this type of writing has been going on for at least 400 years. And there is a deep concern about how the family is structured. And I think Paul's aware of that because in chapter 4, verse 5, he will say, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders. Paul is very concerned about how the household is structured in terms of the way that these very orderly Romans will look at Christian households and how they will judge and how they will evaluate it. Now, we know a little bit more about what's happening in Colossae because we have another book of the Bible called Philemon. See, we, we recognize that in chapter 4, verse 7, that Tychicus is going to come bringing this letter to the church. But he's also going to be accompanied by someone else who Paul says is Onesimus in 4.9, the faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. So a slave, we find out from Philemon, has run away from his master, and he is now being sent back with this letter. And so of the household codes, the section that Paul is most interested in here is slavery. You'll find it's a shorter section about husbands and wives and parents and children. You'll find, for example, in Ephesians, because there's something particularly of interest when it comes to slavery. And so I'm going to try and help us get a sense of what slavery would have been like by doing something a little corny. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interview uh, a slave in Colossae in the first century. And so we ask of this slave, could you please tell everyone your name and your occupation? Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Theophilus. Uh, like a third of the population of my home city, Colossae, uh, I work for uh, my master, Um, I'm I'm a household manager, which essentially means if anything comes up with any other slaves or issues, I take care of it. Where there's a gap or a hole, I always just jump in and do whatever my master asks me to do. And so we have heard that as you become a Christian, there's some confusion. That's the word you've used, right? That there's confusion in the household with Christianity. Could you explain to us why that would be? Yeah, I, I remember really clearly the very first Sunday uh, that I was there. And everybody begins to gather around in the worship service. They begin to gather around the table. And I don't, I don't sit at my master's table. And so when they invited me to the table, I, I tried to say, oh, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. And several other people, much, much higher nobility than me, said, no, you have to come and sit at the table. And I sat at the table, and it was really awkward. And into the process, we realized somebody had forgotten to put the bread on the table. And I immediately jumped up to get the bread because that's my job. And somebody else, another more noble person than me said, no, I'll get it. Oh, and I was really worried what my master was going to say afterwards. The fact that I let a nobleman go and get the bread and I sat back down. Yeah, there's a lot of awkward things that happen when you begin to worship together with your master well now that you've been a Christian for several months I'm assuming that all that confusion and that awkwardness is is gone is, is that right uh, well maybe maybe not there, there's a lot of rumors going on um, we we've heard that to the church in Galatia Paul wrote a letter and, and it's well known that in that letter Paul wrote to them and he said there is no longer Jew or Greek There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And some slaves, specifically you may have heard of this guy Onesimus or... or he decided he's going to just run away from his master. And so the rest of us are asking, is is that what it means to be free in Christ? We're just going to run away and we're going to do our own thing? And some people are saying, no, you need to stay and you need to serve your master. And some people are saying, no, you're free to go and do whatever you want. So I guess the answer is, yeah, we're probably still a little bit confused about the roles in the household. And so one final question. What do you think outsiders think about this Christian movement well the other day one of uh, my master's friends was over and they were talking about Onesimus it's kind of the news around town and he told my master that he would never convert to a religion that didn't uphold order and structure and if there's going to be this kind of chaos created by Christianity he won't respect that faith and he won't respect that religion and he would have nothing to do with it culture where slaves can do whatever they think they want to do and so i hope as we listen in on that we get a sense that there's an awful lot of questions about the household that paul needs to address for people and so as he writes the church he does address that and he addresses it by saying wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the lord Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for your master's. Since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. And so as we look at Paul's instructions, I want to ask the question, first of all, what's unique? Well, first of all, last question, what's not unique? And then we're going to ask what's unique in terms of comparing the household codes that Paul introduces and what we have uh, prevalent at that time. The first thing that is not unique is the structure in terms of the authority of the head of the house, the father. Uh, You can read across the board in all of the documents that are there, and they imagine this setup where the father is the head of the woman and of the children and of the slaves. It doesn't take an awful lot of reading to become aware very quickly that this structure is already in place when Paul writes the letter. And I think it's important for us to realize that Paul is seeking to Christianize a structure, not create a structure. Uh, It's it's important for us to realize, so so for example, let's imagine that there was no slavery in the Roman world. Do we imagine that Paul would then say, you need to, in order to honor Christ, you need to go out and get slaves. That's a structure that God wants you to have. Whereas Paul's saying, in light of the pre-existing structure, here's how your relationship with Christ impacts those dynamics and those relationships. See, as, even as we look at the context of what's happening here, Paul is talking about one thing, and then if you read the letter to Philemon, it seems as though he's suggesting perhaps even something different. Because he says to Philemon, when Onesimus comes back, he says, accept him back no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother. It seems like this structure that is there, Paul is saying it needs to be Christianized. It needs to be structured in a way that, that honors one's relationship to Christ. But I think it's very important for us to recognize that this is not a culture that was matriarchal, and Paul is now saying, hey, we've got to make this patriarchal. It already was before Paul wrote this letter. And he's saying, in light of this structure, and in light of our relationship to Christ, what does it look like in a way for us to redeem members of the family? So Paul has a pre-existing structure. And what's unique is how Paul begins to address that structure. So what is unique? First of all, Paul associates his reasons and his motivations with Jesus. You, you see this all throughout the text. If you look closely and you circle every time you see the word Lord, uh, as is fitting in the Lord. For as your acceptable duty in the Lord, fearing the Lord, as done for the Lord. From the Lord you have received, you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You also have a Lord in heaven. So so we we have moved to a place where everyone living in the household needs to look at Jesus Christ and say, in my relationship to him, how do I live in relationship to these people? That's the foundational relationship. That's the foundational principle that we all look, is we look at how Christ lives. See, they were instructed to live not for things of this earth, but to set their minds on things above to seek the things that are above where Christ is. And so Paul is boiling this down in the most specific application, saying in your home, here's how you live with your mindset on things above. And here's how you live in reference and regard to Christ. And the second thing that's unique is that there was rarely, if ever, any demand placed on the head of the household. Typically with each of these groupings, The head of the household was essentially allowed to do anything he wanted. Women, children, slaves were all viewed as property. And so whatever you could do to your lawn outside, you would be able to do to any of these sort of parties. And so the household codes would most often address wives, children, and slaves. But never had any expectations, never had any callings. For the head of the household in terms of how he was to conduct himself paul on the other hand says that a husband must love his wife paul on the other hand says that a father must not exacerbate his children or bring them to a place of anger paul on the other hand says that masters must treat their slaves justly and see as paul has been talking in chapter 3 about all these one another texts about forgiving and about loving, and about compassion, Paul is going to say, essentially, that just because you're a master, or just because you're a slave, does not mean you're exempt from showing one another compassion, humility, meekness, love. All of these you will find in every dynamic of the household. And the third thing that I find that is unique is that this list shows concern for the treatment of wives, children, and slaves. I guess if you want me to show you some of the original stuff, I'll send you an email and you can dig into all of this sort of stuff. But in terms of the ways that people are permitted to, to treat others, sometimes even it seems like a sport in terms of how a father might treat his children, how he might beat them and find pleasure in that sort of thing. Paul here is concerned for the weaker members, how they are treated, the kind of conduct that they receive. We've recognized already that their husbands are called the live love wives not to provoke them to anger. And in many ways, Paul holds this head of the household as responsible even for the behavior of others in rebellion to him. So if a child is rebelling in anger against the father, Paul will say that's whose responsibility. That's the father's responsibility because of the type of household that father has created. So Paul's teaching is far more liberal than his contemporaries. It shows a greater respect and a greater regard for all members, regardless of who they are. They are to be treated with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, and with patience. And in that culture, if the head of the household complies, all members can live with gratitude in their hearts and thanksgiving to God. But I think the pressing question for us becomes, yeah, but what if things go wrong? Haven't you ever seen something go wrong in this model? If you look at the passage, it's very brief. Paul is writing more like a bulleted form. In fact, I think if that's what was happening today, you'd have these bullet points. If you look at earlier in chapter three, Paul, and, 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 he loves to connect sentences together, but here he's just giving us a very brief overview where each line is independent from the other. And so what Paul is doing, I think the the, the genre that seems to make the most sense to me is that he's kind of giving us a product manual. It's kind of like you get in the car and you say, how do I work this thing? And the product manual says, you know, put your foot on the brake, turn the key, and then it starts. And this is what Paul is saying. This is how it works. But what this particular product manual is lacking is any sort of a troubleshooting guide. Paul doesn't even begin to address the what if. What if the head of the household does not live according to these ways? What if, what if, what if? Paul simply does not even begin to address this. I think in other New Testament letters, when you encounter issues, uh, people marrying non-Christians. Or people who have married somebody who now that spouse is... Paul will unpack some of the troubleshooting questions, but here he simply does not. And I think that if the conversations that we had today surface, Paul would address those, but Paul simply doesn't. And so Paul cannot and does not address every single one of those contexts. So can we solve every question about this text? I doubt that we can But here's what I want us to take away from this morning as we prepare next week to look a little bit more specifically at the content. And the first thing I want us to recognize is the structure existed. That that what Paul is calling for is, in light of now the fact that you're a Christian, it's kind of like that missionary story, in light of the fact that you have multiple wives, here's how you bring Christ into that context and into that situation. In this context... When Christ enters this situation, how does he transform it? Everyone is treated as a precious member of the body of Christ. Whether husband, wife, parent, child, master, slave. There is love and there is respect. And I think that's a revolutionary idea for Paul's day. Paul would have been considered a liberal for saying that a husband should have any regard for his wife. He should have any concern for what the kids might say or think and any concern for the slaves. And so there is a dramatic distance, and the distance is in the direction of showing love and care towards one another. And so next week what we're going to do is we're going to do the hard work of asking the question, in light of who Jesus is, how do we live as families in a way that gives that Jesus gives the greatest consideration, honor, and glory? That's the question that Paul seems to me that he's addressing. What does that look like? And I think what we're going to find is that Christ needs to seep into every nook and cranny of every single relationship in our lives. What relationship do you have where you say Christ's lordship doesn't touch this? Paul's going to say there is not a single relationship. that, in regard and in reference to Christ, we live in a way that shows honor to people. We live in a way that shows kindness to people. How then do we live in marriage in a way that is fitting in the Lord? How do we work for our employers in a way that is acceptable in our duty to the Lord? How do I ensure that I'm living in the fear of God? Well, come back next week and we might try and answer some of those questions. But may God bless us as we begin to wrestle with this text and with this context. And so in your life, you may recognize that there are parts of your life where Christ hasn't seeped into every aspect or element of it. And perhaps this is the day that you want to put him on in baptism to consider him your Lord and Savior and Master. Because we know we have a Master in heaven, don't we? And so if you want to submit to him in baptism this morning, that opportunity is here. And as we sing the next song, you'd have an opportunity. I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be back there. Uh, Just come and find us, uh, talk about what's going on. We'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, But before we do that, I'd like to offer this word of blessing that may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll sing our next song. And if you have any needs, make your way to the back.